listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part nine of a series in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter five, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we'll pause there after verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5. Of course, Jesus has just been talking about being salt and light, salt of the earth, light of the world. He's done that off the back of the Beatitudes, which open this so-called Sermon on the Mount. And the obvious question that might raise for his listeners in first century Judea and Galilee, Jewish people who took seriously the old covenant, as we would call it as Christians, the covenant that God had made with Abraham and maintained with his people Israel throughout the centuries, the Old Testament that testifies to that covenant that describes God's word to Israel and his workings with Israel. Well, how does Jesus relate to that? Is Jesus coming to preach something new, to replace the Old Testament, as we would call it. Well, no, Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That way of speaking is describing what we would now call the Old Testament. Jewish people, of course, don't call it the Old Testament. The Hebrew scriptures, as we might call them, are their Bible. They refer to it as the Tanakh. Tanakh is uh, taken that that word is taken from the, the the beginning letters of the three sections of the Old Testament: the Torah, which is the first five books, sometimes called the Pentateuch, the books written by Moses, and then the Nevi'im is the prophets, and the Ketuvim is the uh, the writings, the other books that aren't amongst the prophets or the Torah, what we might call the history books. Uh, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah um, are all part of the Ketuvim, along with the poetry books, Psalms, Proverbs, and Job, Song of Songs, um, also the Book of Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, and Daniel, uh, and Chronicles. So these, uh, sorry, I've mentioned Chronicles already. So these books, which are, are poetry and history books, are so not the books of the, the prophets, not the books of Moses or of the law. So when Jesus speaks about the law and the prophets, he's referring to two of those three sections of what we would call the Old Testament. And that's a shorthand way of describing the whole of the Old Testament. It's not saying that he's upholding those two parts and not the third section. Uh, this would have been understood as referring to the whole of what we would call the Old Testament. Jesus has not come to abolish the Old Testament at all. He is not opposed to it. He is not doing away with it. He is not critiquing it or rebelling against it. Quite the opposite. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. 
Jesus has come to bring them to fulfillment. Now, what does he mean when he says fulfill them? Well, the word is a, a rich word. It, it could mean uh, a number of different things. But in the context, as Jesus continues, uh, he says that whoever relaxes one of these commandments, verse 19, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he also contrasts his teaching on these matters with the scribes and the Pharisees, verse 20, that our righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. So the Pharisees took seriously the Old Testament in its entirety. The scribes were the people who taught the Old Testament to others and applied it to issues that arose. These people were renowned for their adherence to the law, their faithfulness to the scriptures. And Jesus is saying your righteousness must exceed that. In other words, Jesus is, is, is saying that the, the people who are using the Old Testament, who are uh, applying that, they are, they are lessening this standard. And as we read on in Matthew 5, when Jesus refers to specific Old Testament laws, we'll see that that's exactly what he does. He restores the meaning of the law. He heightens the standard. He intensifies their meaning, not in a false way. He doesn't add to it, but he explains that the, the way that people have interpreted and applied the Old Testament in his time is, is actually lessening its, its significance, lowering the standard of righteousness. So Jesus is not soft on sin. He's not making excuses for the Old Testament law and saying, oh, it was a little bit harsh. We need to be a bit more lenient. Quite the opposite. He's saying that people have applied it in too lenient a way to justify themselves so that they in self-righteousness can pass judgment on others so that they think that they do not need the mercy of God. That's a major theme in Jesus' teaching, especially as he responds to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So in one sense, when Jesus says he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he's saying he has come to restore them. I don't know where you are, whether you have the same product, but if we have a, a deficiency in the walls in our house, we can go and buy a product called polyfiller, and uh, that is ready, usually ready mixed. I think you can buy it as powder to mix up, and then you scrape it into the little deficiencies and sand it off, and it fills in what is missing. In one sense, Jesus is filling up the law, restoring it where people had chipped away at its significance. But I think there is another sense in which Jesus is saying he has come to fulfill the law. Earlier on, as we've looked at Matthew's gospel, we've seen that Jesus' life, as Matthew describes it to us, parallels the story of Israel. Israel was saved out of Egypt, so too was Jesus through uh, his father Joseph, his adoptive father. Uh, Israel uh, passed through the waters, so does Jesus in uh, his baptism by John the Baptist. Israel was tested in the desert and failed the test. Jesus was tested in the desert. Israel for 40 years, Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights, but he passes the test. He is sinless. Israel then received the law in the desert from God. 
And here is Jesus on the mountain, just as Moses was on the mountain receiving the law of God on Mount Sinai. Here, Jesus on a mountain is is teaching the people, passing on his law. In other words, Jesus' life is fulfilling the pattern of Israel. And so when Jesus says he's fulfilling the law and the prophets, I think it's right to see that he, in his life, is fulfilling the standard to which those books call God's people. He is living righteously where Israel failed. He is living faithfully where Israel went after false gods. He is keeping the standard of the law perfectly in his sinless life. He is the hero of heroes. Every hero in the Old Testament story might make us hope for him, but every one of those heroes is flawed. Moses, the great deliverer from Egypt, does not enter the promised land because he uh, is impatient and strikes the rock and does not trust in God. David, the great king, uh, of course, is also the adulterer uh, with Bathsheba. Every hero in the Old Testament is flawed. Everyone might make us think of a greater saviour, a greater hero, and that is Jesus. Every enemy in the Old Testament reminds us of the greatest enemies, death and sin. Well, here is Jesus who has come to conquer those enemies. Here is Jesus who is the ultimate true hero who never disappoints. So Jesus fulfills the law in restoring it. He also fulfills the law and the prophets in fulfilling their story, being the hero that we've been looking for, keeping the standard of the law. But I think there's a third sense in which we can say Jesus will fulfill the law, in that he brings it to its completion, to its purpose. The law, of course, did not simply teach ethical standards of right and wrong, do this and don't do that. That's not what the law is about alone. The law also includes the sacrificial system and the priesthood and the tabernacle, the the way of Israel worshipping God, the way of Israel coming to a holy God despite their sinfulness. Well, Jesus is going to fulfil that as well through his death on the cross. He is the one who will reconcile people to God. He will fulfill what those sacrifices were always pointing to, a way of being made right with God again for sinful people. And that also means that the Old Testament system of worship is going to be replaced, not abolished, but fulfilled. It was, as Hebrews describes it, a shadow pointing to something greater. The substance is found in Jesus, as the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2. So the substance is here. The shadow is fulfilled. The thing that was casting the shadow into the back of Old Testament law is now present. And so Jesus fulfills the law, brings it to its completion. That also means that some aspects of the law and the prophets of what God required of Israel will no longer apply in in the church. That's why Jesus uh, does away with the food laws. And of course, the sacrificial system has been done away with because it's completed in Jesus. The priesthood is no longer required. The tabernacle is no longer required. No more holy places and holy groups of people within the people of God 
all of them are holy. So that's not abolishing the Old Testament. Those things were not abolished, but they had reached their fulfillment. They had fulfilled the purpose for which they were given, which is what Jesus says in uh, verse, um, uh, verse 18. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the littlest part of a letter. Uh, an iota is the smallest part of a Greek letter. A dot, the smallest part of a Hebrew letter. We might think of the dot on top of an I or a J, the smallest mark. Not even the littlest part will pass until all is accomplished. There is an accomplishing of the law. And Jesus, in his death and resurrection, accomplished what the sacrifices pointed to. So those have passed away. Not because they, they are abolished, but because they're fulfilled. Not that they are not significant to us in teaching us about this, the death of Jesus and what it accomplished. They, they, of course, have that purpose, but we don't do them any longer because their meaning has been fulfilled. So Jesus fulfills the law in restoring its standard, as we will see, of righteousness. He fulfills the law in his own life, fulfilling what it was pointing to, living the perfect sinless life. And he fulfills the law in bringing it to a completion, in restoring relationship between people and God. And so Jesus says that Whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do so is the least in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, sometimes people think, well, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, what Jesus came to begin is the new age of the spirit. And we don't need the word any longer. But Jesus won't allow us to think that. No, the word of God is still significant, including the commandments of God. If you read the New Testament, Although the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that Christians are no longer under the law. The law is no longer the way in which we worship God. It's not the system through which we come to God. Paul explains this in the epistle of Galatians and, and in the book of Romans. The law is no longer our way of approaching God, of worshipping him, of serving him. We serve according to the new way, the way of the Spirit. But that does not mean that we don't need instruction. It doesn't mean that we don't need any words any longer. We just follow the Spirit as he leads us in our experience because the Spirit leads us in obedience to the Word of God. The new way of the Spirit is not a new standard of holiness. The same standard of holiness applies that describes the person of God himself. And that's why so many of the commandments of the Old Testament, particularly, say, the Ten Commandments, are repeated in the New Testament, as we'll see in a moment in Matthew 5. But uh, what the, the new way of the Spirit does is, is to give us the power to live according to these truths. No longer are they written externally on tablets of stone, but as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, they are now written on our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit, that new covenant work. So the way of the Spirit is to live by the same standard. That's why Paul says uh, that the person who is filled by the Spirit in Galatians 5, who, who, who has the fruit of the Spirit, rather, uh, who walks in step with the Spirit, fulfills the law. And so Jesus not only fulfills the law, he makes it possible for us to fulfill the law 
by following him, by trusting in him and through the work of the spirit in our lives. And the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, well, this is both a challenge to the Pharisees and scribes who have lessened the intensity of the law, who, although they believed that they were building a, a fence around the law that would protect them from, from breaking any commandments, so they added extra commandments, extra restrictions that the law did not require. So on one hand, it looked as if they had added to the law, but Jesus is actually saying in doing that, they have diminished the law. Why is that? Because they hadn't got to the issue of the heart. As we read on, we'll see that Jesus doesn't let us away with a simple tick box exercise of which sins we have committed. Oh, I've kept that commandment, that commandment, that commandment. Now, the commandments are meant to drive us to examine our hearts before God, to recognise the full extent of our sin. They're also meant to drive us to a whole life obedience to God, not just keeping every little detail of the law, but the weightier matters of the law, as Jesus calls it to the Pharisees when he's critiquing them, those weightier things of justice and mercy. There's no point in me uh, listing all the good things that I have done in obedience to the law. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen, etc., etc. Well, that's all very good, but what have I done? Have I done the thing that God commands me to, loving my neighbour as myself. And the Pharisees, many of them in Jesus' time, were self-righteous. They thought that they could keep pure and they could pass judgment on others. But actually, Jesus is saying that, no, the law requires you to love your neighbour as yourself. So let's read on into some of the examples that Jesus then uses. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your guilt. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. We'll pause there after verse 26. So here Jesus is, is restoring the law. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not murder and if you murder, you'll be judged. But I'm telling you that anger against your brother, insulting your brother, calling your brother a fool is a grave sin that leaves you liable to hell itself. You see, you can imagine the person who says, well, I haven't murdered anybody, so I've kept that commandment. But no, Jesus is saying the issue with these commandments is that they are pointing us to something much deeper. The issue of our attitudes, the issue of our hearts. Of course, the Ten Commandments begin with a commandment about not having any gods before God. And they end with a commandment about not coveting heart issues. Do you see that? And so I cannot say, oh, you know, I haven't murdered and therefore I am right before God. No, my heart might be thinking murderous thoughts. And that in itself is a sin. 
And so I need to take seriously my relationship with my brother. You can imagine the hypocritical Pharisee offering his gift at the altar, oblivious to the fact that he uh, has mistreated his brother, that his brother has something against him. Jesus says, don't bring your offering to God as if God will be impressed with your obedience to him if you are not treating your brother as you ought to. Seek reconciliation with your brother. More on that later in Matthew's Gospel. But it's a vitally important principle, isn't it, in the church? I cannot be all holy before God, singing all these wonderful praise songs, praying wonderful, uh, clever words, standing preaching as I do. If I'm actually in holding something against my brother, or if I have sinned against my brother and I know it, but I refuse to be reconciled with him. No, what a hypocrite I would be. So I need to go and seek reconciliation. I need to come to terms with my accuser. Jesus again uses the courtroom image. You don't leave things to fester. You deal with them quickly. You, you settle the thing. You put it right. Let's read on verse 27 of Matthew 5. You've heard it said that heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that the whole of your body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Pausing after verse 30 of Matthew 5. Again, you see how Jesus is, is restoring the full intensity of this commandment? I haven't slept with a woman who isn't my wife. Tick, I've kept the commandment. No, Jesus says. If you have lusted, if you have looked at another woman and imagined yourself engaging in sexual activity with her, if you've looked at her body and seen it as an object of your sexual gratification, which I think means this applies to, to pornography use, even if you would say, I wouldn't actually sleep with that woman. If you've done that, then you are misusing your sexual desire, your sexual impulse. You've already committed adultery in your heart. Take it seriously. So Jesus says uh, you should cut off your right eye if it causes you to sin and your right hand if it causes you to sin. And the, the challenge here is, is not literal, of course. I think if this was literal, then we would have lots of accounts both in the Bible and uh, in church history of Christians doing this. The reality is that I think it's quite clear that we are not expected to do this um, literally. But what Jesus is saying figuratively is that, that we have to bring our bodies under control, that we have to deal seriously with sin, that we have to ask what each member, each part of our body is for, that sin is not something to be taken lightly and to be thrown into hell, missing parts of our body would uh, or sorry, rather, to be thrown into hell would be worse than to enter into life missing parts of our body. So sin is not to be played with. We have to get to the heart of the issue and we have to deal seriously before God with sin. 
Again, reading Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now again here, verse ending at verse 22, Jesus is restoring the law, the full intensity. In the Old Testament, Moses gave uh, permission for divorce. Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 to 4 describe that provision. If a man finds some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends it her out of his house, and she departs out of his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, the latter man writes a certificate. So th there's basically a, an acknowledgement there that divorce happens. That's not quite the same as the law providing for divorce. And when Jesus is asked about this uh, elsewhere in the Gospels, he, um, he makes it very clear what God's intention in marriage is, that marriage would be lifelong. That's in Matthew 19. We'll come to it in due time. So marriage should be lifelong between one man and one woman. When divorce happens, it is an exception to that. But the rabbis had taken those verses in Deuteronomy and they had debated, well, what circumstances are we allowed to divorce our wives in? There were two broad schools. One took a very restrictive view uh, that was associated with rabbi. And he says, I understand that Hillel was associated with a more strict view on divorce, that it was only for things like sexual immorality, whereas Shammai's school, uh, the rival school, was um, open to uh, greater grounds for divorce, so much so that some Jewish men believed they could divorce their wife for what we would count as menial, tiny things like burning the dinner. Now, that, of course, is very demeaning of a woman and of marriage. Well, Jesus makes it very clear, both in Matthew 19 and here in Matthew 5, that the biblical pattern is that divorce is exceptional and sexual immorality that breaks the very nature of the marriage relationship that is a denial of the covenant of marriage is the only grounds for divorce. We might extend from that to other things that break the very nature of marriage, for example, abusive an abusive spouse may, uh, the, the innocent person may uh, be able to at least separate, if not fully divorce. But uh, Jesus is very clear that there's a very high standard for marriage, a very high uh, threshold for divorce in his teaching. He's restoring the law against some who had diminished it. Uh, and we'll leave our reading there in Matthew 5 at the end of verse 32 for now. We'll pick up in the next episode in verse 33. But I hope you've seen through these illustrations about uh, murder and anger, about adultery and, and lust and divorce, that Jesus is restoring the standard of the law. He's showing us that we have a bigger problem with sin than we like to admit that we have. That sin is not just that we occasionally break the odd law. Sin gets to the very heart of who we are. That even our good deeds are often marred by bad attitudes of heart, by things that we dwell on in our inner selves that are unholy and ungodly. And we need, Jesus says, righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 20, he is restoring the standard. That raises the very obvious question, who could possibly live by that standard? 
Well, as we read on into Matthew, we'll find from Jesus how a person enters the kingdom of heaven. That's what he says, verse 20. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven without a a higher righteousness than the scribes or Pharisees. Well, he will teach more about entering the kingdom later on in Matthew's gospel. But we understand ultimately that this righteousness does not come, as Paul will describe it in the book of Romans, through our efforts to keep the law. But it is a righteousness that comes from God through faith that we sinful people cry out for God's mercy, and on the basis of Jesus' death for us in our place, we receive forgiveness, we are declared right with God, we stand righteous in Christ. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He doesn't explain that, but we understand it as we read on into the New Testament, and we can give thanks for this. So we don't stand and pretend that we are less sinful than we truly are, We receive the words of Jesus and say, I'm a deeper, worse sinner than I ever imagined. But I can be forgiven by God and by his power, by the work of the Spirit in me, I can learn to live the holy life that Jesus is calling me to. I pray that you will make progress in that in your life as you continue to seek the Lord Jesus and to let his Spirit work in you.